New markets are, it's funny, because they're very intellectually challenging and fun and rewarding, but they're also really hard. I mean, I, I don't know, the expression pushing a rock uphill doesn't seem strong enough. It's like pushing a, a rock uphill that's on fire. <laughs> Whether it's a bill that you send out, or it's a gift that you send them or don't send them, or it's a meeting you don't invite them to, or you give them a speaking slot or you don't, everything affects customer relationships. I think for me, the thing I believe in the business world that a lot of people don't is the traditional expression people use is it's not personal, it's business. That's you know from The Godfather, people say it all the time. And I think it's actually not business, it's personal. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. We're very excited to welcome Nick Mehta to Founder Real Talk. Nick's the CEO of Gainsight, the leading customer success management SaaS company. And Nick is a return CEO. Prior to Gainsight, he served as CEO of Live Office, where he led the company's profitable growth to $25 million in revenue and successful sale to Symantec. During college in the mid-90s, Nick co-founded his first business, a venture-funded online golf retailer called Chipshot.com. It became one of the top 20 retailers of its time. He holds a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and a master's degree in computer science from Harvard. Uh-oh, he's smart. And I've never been smart enough to invest in Gainsight, uh, Nick's company, for GGV, but I've gotten to know him over the years. He's a great CEO with lots of lessons to impart, so I'm really excited for today's show. Nick, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Hey, Glenn. Let's make it real. I'm excited to talk. Awesome. So I wanted to start by asking you about Gainsight and when you joined Gainsight. You joined actually concurrent with the Series A funding done by uh, Roger Lee over at Battery, my good friend, in, in 2013. It's pretty rare for a CEO to come into a company, a non-founding CEO to come into a company that early in a company's life. Why'd you do it? What'd you see in the Gainsight opportunity and, and what led you to make that decision so early on? Well, whenever I talk about Gainsight, I always say the story started with my childhood, if you can believe it. My, so my dad was an executive in tech. And um, when I was a kid, he would always say, if you go into business, make sure you're either the person building the product or the person selling the product. Because once you've got a customer, you've got them for life. And obviously, that's the way that a lot of companies operated for a long time. A lot of the towers and yachts and stuff up and down Silicon Valley were funded on that model that it's just about sales and product, right? And then I, so I grew, up, grew up in my career. I started at Veritas, which became Symantec, and great company, but all really sticky software, and it was all about building and selling. I went to run this first company that was in the SaaS world, Live Office, and running that business, I was like, oh my gosh, our customers have all the power. I've got to learn this whole new way of doing things. And I was literally sitting in a meeting in probably 2009, running this company in a conference room, having no idea what our customers are doing and saying, somebody should start a company to solve this problem. And it turned out somebody had, which is Gainsight. And so fast forward a few years later, I got this call from Roger Lee. And, and the fun story is that I... When he called me, I was like, okay, well, Roger, I, I love you. I'll, I'll hear the idea. Um, sounds really interesting. He told me the idea, and I kind of fell in love with it. And I was like, so how far along is this? Is this $10 million of revenue or $20 million? He's like, <laughs> it's a brand new startup. And I was ready to jump into the cushy, late-stage CEO job. But You're like, where's my yacht? Where's yeah, my big exactly. building? Yeah, exactly. But, but it was just, I just fell in love with the concept. And yeah, it's about five years ago. Okay, so you know you join a Series A company, right. and um, obviously you got to produce re results quickly. How did you assess your the company and, and everything about it so early on? Uh, you know your team, your market. What, what sort of things did you do to figure out what you had to work with? Yeah, I mean the company was very early. I'm employee seventeen, and we we just had a few beta customers. So good news is there wasn't a ton to assess except this belief 
that we saw a big opportunity out there. Um, so for me, there are four things I focused on early on that I think we as a team really, really try to dive into. Number one, and I think a lot of people do this too late, is we, we defined our values on like basically month one. Mm. And I think that's why it's a lot easier when you do that in the beginning and you really have an easy ability to kind of mold around that and make the rest of the company live that. So that was number one. Number two, um, obviously we had to get a sales motion going. And honestly, in the early days of enterprise software, it's super painful. I remember Q2 2013 and literally just like looking out at the sales floor, no phones are ringing, <laughs> nothing's <laughs> happening. People might have been playing video games. I think we closed one deal the whole quarter. Um, number three, you got to get your early customers. So for us, you know, the first kind of nine months or a year, we got our first big customer, which was Box, which you know I know you know well, and we're fortunate to work with, and they really helped shape the product and shape who we were. And so that was the three. And then number four, you got to obviously talk to smart people like you and get that future financing set up. And we were fortunate to I think plot out the kind of ability to fund the company, which is always you know really important in the early days. Mm, that four point plan is really interesting. I'm going to touch on a few of those things a little later on. But let's let's talk a little bit about the fact. Look, you, you've built a huge amount of momentum at Gainsight, but customer success management as a market is is fairly new. You guys have really been the trailblazer. How much of a challenge has it been to grow a new market? You know, a lot of the listeners to this podcast, I think, are trying to grow new markets and attack new markets. So w- when you started, how did you think about that? And you know, was there any budget for your software out there at Prospects? How did you deal with that problem and 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 really try to try to get awareness going? Yeah, I mean, new markets are, it's funny because they're very intellectually challenging and fun and rewarding, but they're also really hard. I mean, I, I don't know, the expression pushing a rock uphill doesn't seem strong enough. It's like <laughs> pushing a, a rock uphill that's on fire. <laughs> it's it's pretty challenging, but it's also really rewarding because you can, once you do it, you know, you do have this mind share. So for us, the fundamental challenge, as you alluded to, is we are building software for customer success people. And there were no customer success people, or not that many at least, right? They didn't know that they were customer success people. And there's two problems with that. Number one, you don't have anyone to sell to. But the, actually, the other problem is you don't have anyone to build for, right? So it's an interesting iterative problem in a new category, right? It's not just a sales problem. It's a building problem. What problem are we solving and how do we sell? And it iterates. And so you have to get that flywheel going, right? And so for us, it really focused on building the community around customer success because we realize if there's no community, then there's nothing to sell to. And I think if you look at a lot of really successful businesses now, they've been focused on community. I mean, we can talk about GitHub just now or, or other ones, right, that are all about a community. So for us, it was the biggest community for customer success. Mm-hmm. We, we'll talk more about this conference we created. We focused very much on the profession. So we became the champions of the profession of mm-hmm. customer success and still are today. Turned into writing a book on the topic and creating a job board and creating an online university. We're now partnering with colleges on curriculums. So we went heavy on the profession so we could go build software for them. Let's go right at it then and talk a little bit about that community and how you've built it. In particular, I'd love to ask you about Pulse, which yeah. is a big conference you've put on. Uh, many of the companies we work at GGV do customer conferences and get a lot of value, but uh, I'm curious to get the sense from you, A, why'd you start it? when did you start it? How big were you guys when you did it? And what were you hoping to accomplish? What did you actually accomplish? And now you've been doing it a few years, sort of how's it evolved? Uh, totally, yeah. And so the conference you're referring to, we call Pulse, and um, it really did start in the very beginning. I'll tell you the story. We were, I don't know, less than twenty people in the company, and in terms of business people, like like three three business people. I just hired my um, head of marketing, who had worked for me in my last company, and I came in. I told them we needed to relaunch the company, and we needed to build a website because we didn't even have a website. We needed to come up with our branding. Uh, logo, and by the way, can we throw a little event as well? And this is um, early, like February 2013. 
Um, we're sitting actually in a, in a really crappy Regis office in San Jose. By the way, this is pre-WeWork for the kids out there. This is like the very, very old school version of WeWork. Okay, so I just really want to set the stage. You're talking about doing a conference and you don't yet have your own we office. We don't have an office. Yeah, That's exactly. awesome. Right. Okay. We also didn't have any customers. So there's, <laughs> there's a lot of problems with this plan. Details, details. Yeah, exactly. So actually, it's funny because we literally were sitting there. We're like, okay, it would be cool to throw an event to just get this community going. There's probably something here. But and then somebody said, should we do a customer event? And I said, well, that'd just be depressing because we don't have any customers. So like three people show up, and one of them would be my mom, most likely, right? So we said, what do we do to create something bigger? And we said, well, this is a profession. It's a new profession. People seem to want to learn from each other as much as anything else. So let's create this event. We said, let's do the first event and have 50 people there. That was our goal. And we did in a hotel in San Francisco. Uh, we ended up getting 300 people there. So the first year, 300 wow. people. And it was it was really just like, I mean, it's still probably one of the most special moments in company history. Um, we'll talk more about some things we learned. But one of them is we've named it Pulse. We didn't call it Gainsight. This is one of the, mm-hmm. I talk, people always ask about this stuff. And I say, look, part of it is making the whole thing bigger than you, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. not about Gainsight. It's about this community. We don't call it Gainsight's user conference. We didn't talk about our product. We didn't talk about our roadmap. It was all about the community. We can talk more about details about that. But that got the whole thing going. And you, you know, kind of for folks that don't know about this conference, you know, fast forward five years and the, the most recent one we did uh, here in San Mateo, we had 5,200 people there, right? And five years later, it's one, probably one of the biggest com- conferences a private company does, right? Yeah. And it's really been the engine. We'll talk more about it, but the engine for everything we do, we created all these other community things off that. We wrote a book, we do local groups, we do a pulse in Europe. That then gave us awareness and credibility to go get customers and to learn what they need and build for them. And obviously, now we have a, a lot of customers and a decent sized business. So it really all did start with mm. Pulse. Mm. That is that is awesome. Do you do like customer advisory board meetings around Pulse? Do you allow your sales folks to invite prospects to Pulse? How, how does that work? It's a fabulous question, Glad, because it's interesting because I think most people do all that stuff in the beginning and they don't do all the other stuff. And we, we're like the bizarro company. We did the all the community building stuff. And then probably four years in, we're like, you know, we should probably like focus on sales here too and like talk about our product. And so we've actually always tried to walk a fine line because we don't want people to come to this event and feel like it's a sales event. Right. But we do now create special places. Actually, this most recent time we had like those kind of like big trailer kind of things, the, the cool camper trailers where salespeople could go invite customers in and do demos. And then we had a customer area where we did roadmap and things like that. So we, we do things like that. But the core and the soul is about the community. I've heard from some other folks in your shoes who do these types of events that some of the best momentum is accrued when customers talk to other customers. Do you try to gear the Pulse event to make sure those kinds of interactions occur? And if so, how? Yeah, it's a great question because I've talked to a lot of people about what I've learned and what I would have done earlier. In the early days of a small event, if you think about it based on serendipity, there's a lot of natural interaction that happens, right? Mm-hmm. Beautiful thing about a 20-person event is everyone talks to everyone, right? <laughs> 50 people, most people talk to everyone, right? But once you get to you know thousands or multi-thousands of people, it's pretty intimidating, and actually it's hard to get people connected. Yep. So in the early days, it just happened naturally. We then introduce more things to structure that. For example, we do workshops where people sit at round tables and 
Then they talk to their peers about what's happening and how they're solving problems in their business. Um, we actually created this app. We wrote this software literally just to connect people in our industry together. So you fill out a form. It's, it's like eHarmony for customer success. You fill out your <laughs> form about you know your business and you know who you sell to and what your challenges are. And we match make and those people meet at Pulse. We actually had a thousand people meet. <laughs> a thousand relationships started <laughs> through Gainsight Pulse, right? B- business relationships. And I'm, so I'm, I'm hearing a new business line. I know exactly. New opportunity, yeah. Nick. But it's interesting because if when you your question's so astute, what people want at these events and everywhere else is just to connect with other people. That's what they want. So if you can connect your customers together mm. and get out of the way, I think you've had a successful event. Really cool. Are there any metrics you guys use to gauge whether or not Pulse is working and whether or not all this community building you've done being on the forefront of this market, how do you gauge success? Yeah, it's funny because there's this Einstein quote, I don't know if you've ever heard it, that like the things that count in life are uncountable, right? Mm -hmm. And so we feel a lot like Pulse for a long time has been the most important thing that we do and yet really hard to measure because it touches so many things. However, we we did actually last summer say we need to quantify it in some way. So we actually, the perfect project for an intern, we had a, an intern going into HBS, great guy, Alex Immerman, and he came in and worked with me and he analyzed all the data. So, you know, who came to Pulse? Who came to Pulse and didn't come back the next year? Who came to Pulse and did they buy afterwards? Who came to Pulse and did they retain if they're an existing client, right? And what we found, not surprisingly, is people that come to Pulse, they buy at a much higher rate. Their deal sizes are much bigger. They actually retain at a much higher rate. We actually wrote a whole blog post about this. We try to be transparent about all our learning. So all of the data about what we learn about putting on this big conference Now, of course, if you're a statistical wonk, you could say, well, maybe the people that come to Pulse are the ones that are more likely to buy more. But I would say that just hand on heart, there's nothing that we do that's anywhere close to as important as Pulse. Great. So let's shift gears. So you've created this great community. Now you got to go sell them on Gainsight. Right. Um, Now you're selling mostly to large enterprise Mm -hmm. and mostly direct. Mm -hmm. That's kind of an old school model. It's an expensive model. Old uh, so, school. I'm right here, man. I love yeah, it. Actually, exactly. I like old school. Old school uh, can be profitable, too. <laughs> you're old school, but younger than me, sadly. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what it's like to run a business that's going to market that way. Uh, it's expensive. The deals are large. So you don't get the benefit of, like, for example, uh, you know, a Zendesk or a Box, uh, at least in the early days, or a Slack, who kind of has, inbound, the, has the, yeah. the inbound bottoms up accelerated uh, velocity type selling. Yeah, yeah. So how do you deal with that as a company and how have you built your business to deal with the the ups and downs of big sales? Totally, yeah. I, I'll say, share a couple comments. Number, so For us, it's been expensive and I think some of that is the category creation, mm-hmm. which is almost separate from enterprise. They're almost two separate things. Um, I will say upfront that enterprise doesn't always have to be a bad uh, high cash flow burn business in the early days. I, I look at companies like ServiceNow and Viva and other ones that have done an amazing job, right, with actually oh, very yeah. little. So I think there's some paths, especially if an existing market, mm-hmm. where it actually can be, in a way, simple. You go to a few customers, build what they need, they pay you upfront, right? So it's not inherently an expensive model. I think there is an element of running it well. And then there's an element putting aside the cost of, of actually just knowing the actual mechanics of it. I think that's where actually it is really challenging it is emotionally. It's challenging to learn how these big companies think. So a couple of things I've learned. Number one, you'll be in a meeting and you're trying to sell to a small company. You'll say, what does that small company want, right? And there's probably somebody at that small company that you're dealing with. You're dealing with Lauren or you're dealing with Joe or whoever, right? And what does Lauren want equals what the company wants, right? When you're dealing with a big company, there's no one thing that they want. There's no one voice. 
It's a massive coalition sale. So it's very frustrating for people sometimes to say, well, what do these people want? Can't they all just get together in a room and agree on what they want to do? And the answer is no. Your job is to actually shepherd that, right? And a lot of people can say no to your deal and any one of them can shoot it down. And you just need to make sure there's no no's and enough yeses. So I think actually one of the bigger things in just burn is actually the emotional mm. challenge. I see a lot of founders struggle with that, right? Yeah. It's like, this is so confusing. So that's one thing I think you sort of have to get used to that. Given that you, you call this a, a coalition sale, like a complex selling process, have, have you guys figured out who the key stakeholders are typically? And particularly as you develop the market a little bit more, how you go find those people and, and win them methodically to get, get to the totally. place you want to get if to? If you're an enterprise uh, business, and I w- this is one of the other things I wish I'd done earlier, one of the things that's really important is to define your personas, as you just uh, alluded to. So again, you know, we sell to B2B businesses with a recurring revenue business model, and we have these key personas. We we name them, right? So you might have done this in past lives, right? We, we've got Pam, who's the head of all post-sales in a company. We've got Sally, the customer success leader. We've got Maya, the head of marketing. We've got Ichiro, the CIO, right? We actually have these names. We have pictures on the walls and understand what makes them tick. And we did that about a year and a half ago. We should have done that four years ago. Interesting. So I would totally do that. And then every conversation in Gainsight internally is about, is this for Ichiro or is this for Pam? Is this the Pam strategy? What content are we building for Ray? Ray's the sales leader. And so we're really, really thoughtful about that. And it's one of the most important things I've learned in enterprise. Interesting. So just those names give common vernacular, right. like common understanding so that people can, can speak the same language when trying to decrypt what the sales process is going to look like? Absolutely. And, you know, because otherwise it's overly simplistic, like exec. Exec is not a a role. There's so many different execs in a company, right? And then it's not just the sales process, you know, building on what we just talked about. We now, in our roadmap, are like, these features are for Pam. These are for Sally. These are for Ichiro, right? Uh, If we were thinking about doing some acquisitions of adjacent companies, and would this be something that Pam would buy? You know, what is Ray into this, right? Like, so we actually, like everything we talk about in the company is persona-based now. Very cool. The other thing I'd, I'd share is sort of a, maybe two other learnings that are just little things that actually I think do get challenging. Qualifying deals. So, you know, where people do burn money is you spend a lot of time chasing a lot of deals, right? And it's it's not easy because on one extreme, when you start, you're not qualified for anything. So if you just qualify out, that means, you know, figure out what doesn't fit. You'll literally just have no deals, right? On the other hand, if you just take every meeting and keep taking every second meeting, you're, you're going to spend a lot of time and go nowhere, um, so I think there's there's no simple rules there, but I do think this persona thing helps because you understand mm-hmm. who's going to drive the deal. And I think you do have to be open-minded in your biggest customers. Like One simple example with us was we had a our biggest customer ever is a you know, multi-million dollar ACV customer, and they came to us through an RFP, uh, RFP request for proposal for people listening. And um, they sent us this RFP, and we weren't even in any meetings. Typically, that's an absolute, you're never going to get that deal. Right. Right. But actually, it turned out we had like pretty good fit for what they needed, and it's now our largest customer. So the enterprise, unfortunately, there's not a playbook. It's not like everything just works the same way, right? So, and then the last thing I'd share with folks is you really have to get good at pricing. If you're an enterprise, right? And many people know this. And SMB is awesome. You can optimize your pricing when you put on your website, right? Enterprises, the pricing is such a big deal, mm-hmm. and it's so many variables. So getting a pricing person who's an expert. Even when you're 100 people, I, we brought a pricing person on it when we were about 400 employees, and we should have done that when we were 100 employees. So I want to pull on that thread a little bit more. Your product helps customers manage customer success themselves, right? right? You know, the, the hope is that that drives high customer sat, good account growth, high renewal rates. Do you guys use your own product? And you're selling this product, so presumably you're best in class. Like, have you guys lost a customer? And 
If so, like what led to that and how have you dealt with it? Yeah, totally. We use our product every day. We're the number one still users of our product in terms of we use it in every dimension you can possibly imagine because we do think that the future of companies put everything around your customers. So, we so, actually, so our Sally, Pam, Maya, and Ichiro yeah, are part internal, of your company? We actually we have our CIO, his name's Carl, but we always call him Ichiro. <laughs> That's and awesome. yeah, yeah, it's actually really funny. But the way we think about it internally is that we need to be the best user of our product. It's very important for our business, but also obviously helps us define the model for the industry. Um, we always joke that we live in the movie Inception, if you, you remember the movie exactly. with the layers of the dream. Yes. So we're often in Gainsight, using Gainsight to retain another customer who's also using Gainsight. So it's very confusing. So are you, Le- are you Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah, exactly. I spin that coin on the table all the time (laughs) to see if I'm actually awake or not. But so we do that, and we actually are really proactive. Um, And yeah, we have had churn. Not we actually have great retention rates, but of course, very few companies get through without losing a customer ever. And actually, what we've learned is everything matters. So one of this is one of the biggest learnings I think if you're building a business. You think that it's like one thing that causes somebody to buy or not buy or stay or not stay. But I'll tell you a story about a customer that we lost that's one of our painful stories. Small customer, somebody really liked though. Nice. They were an advocate of ours early on. And this is one of the things that happens, by the way, as you grow, is you have a small number of customers that are advocates, and you, you should stay close to them. But mm-hmm. actually, your customer base grows, so it's actually hard to do it's that. Hard. Right? And yeah. you've probably seen that in your career as well. It's hard to stay close to everyone. And this customer who we actually really like a lot, um, you know, we went from giving him free conference passes to maybe one year somebody in our team didn't know that he should get free conference passes, so we tried to charge him, right? And then separately, somebody you know raised his pricing a little bit, and separately, you know, like uh, there was a feature that was delayed that he wanted, right? And all these little things, little right? Things. But those little things add up. And you know, we ended up noticing it, but we couldn't, couldn't turn it around. But I use that example internally about the fact that everything, whether it's a bill that you send out, or it's a gift that you send them or don't send them, or it's a meeting you don't invite them to, or, or you give them a speaking slot or you don't, everything affects customer relationships. There's a quote from a, a recent blog post that you guys put out, customer success is fundamentally about realizing your customer is not a transaction or deal, but a human being just like you. And like you, they want to succeed in what they do. That that kind of is reminiscent right. of that story, right? This is this is a very personal exactly. decision. So, how do you guys apply that philosophy? How do you, how do you not have those challenges occur again? What right. do, what do you do internally to make sure it still feels really personable as you grow that customer base? Yeah, it's interesting because when we think about the mission of our company, fundamentally, we're trying to be able to blend the best of what I think of as large scale technology with like your favorite small restaurant or retail store. Mm. You think about a restaurant, the favorite one that's there, the great thing is you walk in, they know your order, they know where you want to sit, right? And technology has allowed businesses to scale massively, but taken away all that customer intimacy. And what we want to do in our business and also with our customers is let them have the benefits of scale of technology, but with the customer intimacy we all had when we were small businesses. And so for us, what that practically means is, okay, every time you have something like the story I told you that happens, you incorporate that into the triggers you look for next time to make sure you don't let that happen. But then you also just educate people on those stories. I think it's a combination of both. You know, We can talk more about our culture later, but the human aspect is a huge part of our culture. And we tell people these stories of the times we messed up. So then we know that we shouldn't mess up again and we should learn from that. Do you have examples where you've told stories about situations where the company didn't quite execute the way you wanted to, but were able to then resuscitate the customer and kind of come back from those? Every day. I mean, I think that's what customer success is all about. Yeah. Is your customers, um, I actually recently, I wrote a blog post a couple years ago, and it said that customer success is like gravity, like naturally everything falls down, right? So (laughs) if you're you're listening to this podcast, all of your customers are at risk, every single one of them. You don't know it. 
but all of them are at risk because things are commoditizing and your stakeholders are leaving and their business is changing and they might get bought. And so, yeah, every single day, all of us are trying to prevent those bad things from happening, but also drive towards the good things, right? The expansion, the advocacy. And, you know, there's just a huge amount that people can do by being more proactive with their clients. Okay, so uh, let's shift gears a little bit. You guys have been very successful building this category. That's attracted some competition. Do you think competition's a good thing? Uh, you wish they weren't there? And how do you stay ahead of your competitors? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I mean, uh, probably like you, I read every Jeff Bezos shareholder letter religiously. I don't know if you read those or I not, love, but it, there's them. so much to learn from Amazon. And one of the expressions that I think is just brilliant is that they're customer-obsessed, not competitor-obsessed. And I'll say that you talk to anyone at Gainsight, we're customer-obsessed, not competitor-obsessed. So all of our information is online, not password protected. All of our documentation. And in the early days of a startup, you're like, we need to hide everything. We never hit anything. You know, we we were fine with people coming. Some competitors actually exhibited our conference, if you can believe that, right? We That's really, awesome. yeah. And the way we think about our competition is, there's some companies that go after kind of the the lower end of our market of like the real small companies using customer success. And in a way, they're good because you want some level of breadth in the market and you know things like that. So there's actually some benefit to having multiple players. We've been really fortunate that in this sort of enterprise orientation that we've been in, we've you know definitely been far and away the, the leader. So that's been good. And I think some of that's just been, we've been very focused, right? We've been, number one, we've been focused on our, I mentioned our culture and our values. And I think that actually does show up with customers. We are very transparent. Every The first slide of every presentation in a sales deck is our values. Literally, I was just on a presentation day with a very big company, and the first slides are value before we talk about our product, right? And so I think that actually resonates. We've wow. done a lot of fun, very you cool. know, music. We've done music videos. You may have seen some of this stuff over the years. Yep. And our customers love that. They love being part of our culture and like tying that's number one. Number two, obviously, the community does create a bit of a moat, right? Because we have by orders of magnitude, the biggest community and customer success. And I think that's a strategy, I think, in general, if you're in software, is an underused strategy, is the community can be as big of a mode as your technology. Number three, obviously, we've been fortunate to partner with great investors, and we have the resources that are above and beyond others. And then four, I think the advantage that also anyone can build is focus, right? So we are the best solution by many, many orders of magnitude for like a part of the market. We think it's a big part of the market, right? But we're really been focused from day one. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Th- when we had friends that were in the 10-person startup that wanted to look at Gainsight in the early days, we're like, you know what? We're not going to do an awesome job there. We're trying to serve the needs of big companies. And you know, and so that that actually helped a lot. And now over time, we've kind of been able to go down market and things like that. But I think focus early on really helped the business. It's reminiscent of what we heard from Stuart Butterfield uh, from Slack on this podcast, who said that he's competitor-aware Customer obsessed. I love. I've seen him say that too. Yeah. I think that's really yeah. great because you know, it's not like you're not. I, I don't. The people that say I've never even heard about my competitors. That's just not authentic, right? Yeah. So of course you have, but yeah. The other yeah. thing I think is so our kind of company culture is very human centric, and I even look at our competitors. I'm not. They're not on our walls on a dartboard. Like they're human beings. They're just trying to make a living and things like that. So we have no uh, negative feelings towards our competitors. We think they're doing good stuff too, but. You know, we've just been able to focus and execute. So to drill down a little bit more on culture, it's it's really interesting that you share your culture so upfront with your customers and prospects and and make that really part of the, the sales cycle and really uh, experience of working with Gainsight. I think that is very innovative and sounds like it's gone a long way for you guys. You talk about childlike joy and uh, shoshin, which shoshin, is exactly. beginner a beginner's mind, right? As as elements of your culture, I thought those were very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose those those elements sure, and, and what totally. value they brought? Yeah, and a little bit of the history is probably relevant. Where we we started the company, as I mentioned, with these three values, actually, and then added two more on. So the first three values were golden rule, 
treat people the way you'd want to be treated, success for all, you know, drive a business to drive success for mm-hmm. all our stakeholders, mm-hmm. not just shareholders, although we love shareholders, but everyone else as well. And then Childlike Joy, which is one of the ones that we got kind of, you know, well known for because we really feel like the sort of passion and lack of cynicism children have is inspirational. And that shows up for us. And I mean, literally we made one of our conferences, we made a Disney musical about customer success. <laughs> we did a, we did a Taylor Swift video. We made is there a, rap- a video, is there a video of the Disney musical? It's available? all on YouTube. Yeah, actually, right. unfortunately I'm, 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 my, my future career is, is I'm in trouble if I run for <laughs> politics. It's all, all online, but we, we had these, these values. And then they, then we added Shoshin beginner's mind a couple years later. And then we added this stay thirsty about ambition. And so we had these values that we felt really passionate about. I think everyone, bought into and and actually literally down to the level when you fill out a decision at Gainsight, like you have a decision to make about equity or a sales process or product, you fill out a template and you have to fill out how this aligns to our values. So the values are everywhere, every single day. And li- so literally we'll have conversations to tie it all together where it's like, okay, this helps childlike joy, but how does it affect Pam? <laughs> so it's all, it's all very interrelated. So that was kind of one level. Now the next level we actually then took it to was, I, I tried to, tie into what you're saying, I tried to experiment with being more vulnerable with everyone around this stuff. So actually, the journey started a year and a half ago, our company kickoff last year, and I actually told a lot of some stories about my childhood, and I was, and, uh, though I'm an extrovert now, I was definitely an introvert, didn't have any friends, and talked about some challenges I've had in my life. And, Find that um, hard to believe. Yeah, I know, it's surprising, right? It's, it actually, a lot of people do, uh, but it was, it was genuine. And I told that, and people were so, they just really connected. And so then I said, okay, let me try this at our conference. So last year at our conference, I talked literally to the, 4,000 people about how I, I sat alone at lunch every day as a child, right? And I didn't have any friends, and and it really moved people. And, and so then this year, we took that next level, and we basically introduced, wrapped it all together, and at our conference, introduced what we talk about as our company purpose. Because for all of us, we, we love the software, we love the business, we like making money, all those things are good. But the thing that really motivates us is that you can run a company differently. And so our company purpose is to be living proof that you can win in business while being human first. And human mm-hmm. first means we're, we're able to actually bring the humanity in all of us and our customers to work every day and, and talk about, for example, eating alone every day as a child to your customers in front of 5,000 people you don't know. So it's been an amazing experiment for us. And so far, it's been very rewarding. You've been outspoken on social media about the importance of diversity and inclusion. Is that part of your culture? And what what have you seen in terms of benefit from uh, striving for those things? I think a lot of these things, the values and this purpose and diversity, they have to be personally important to like the CEO and the team, right? You can't Mm -hmm. do them because somebody else tells you there's a blog post that says these are the tips to a culture, right? And so for me, it's it's actually something where I'm like, what kind of impact could I have on the world? Well, at the end of the day, we make software, enterprise software. It's not like we're like flying a car into space, right? And so, but you know what? Leave that can, to Elon Musk. Yeah, well, he's doing doing some good stuff. Um, well, maybe not so much in Twitter lately. But you know what we can do though is really change the way people think about roles in companies and you know balance and and level the playing field, all those kinds of things. And I think there's so much to be done. I mean, I the, it kills me the people that think that there's a meritocracy and a level playing field today. It's just so not true. And I know everything I have is because of privilege. It's a complete privilege of my parents and you know upbringing and college and and so I'm really aware all of those that. solo lunches yeah the solo lunches think through what you're going right. to do later yeah that's right that's exactly right and so I really believe that and actually for folks listening you know like I, I you know read Brotopia recently which is a book by Emily Chang and I was fortunate enough to be on a panel with her at a conference on this topic and 
there's just so much you can do as a CEO. Mm. Um, I actually, one of the things I said at this conference was a lot of CEOs will look at diversity and say, oh, it's really hard. It's hard. You know, there's a pipeline or whatever. They'll say it's hard. I'm like, you know, the whole job's hard. Like, it's hard to get customer. Everything we've talked about is so hard. Creating a category, raising money. Yeah. This thing is no harder than any of those. And I think all of us can make a huge impact uh, with our voices and our choices. That's very cool. Very cool. So I want to shift gears a little bit. As you alluded to earlier, you've been a CEO before, right? Gainsight is not your first rodeo. Not only your, not your first rodeo, but you're building a company, obviously, that's that's created a lot of value, but you've done that already in the past. How are you doing things differently this time around? Are you a better CEO now? And if you could turn around and talk to the Nick Meadow, who's a first-time CEO today, what kind of advice would you give that, that yeah, Nick? Yeah, I'll give you both those. So in terms of differently, actually, it's funny. I think if you talk to my wife, uh, who have been married a very long time, I think she would say it's a lot better this time. Like she can see it in terms of when I come home and our interactions and just, she feels like I'm living my true self more. I think some of that comes out when you just, as you grow or who, who knows how it happens, you get that confidence of who you are. And all these things I talked about today beyond business, like the purpose and values and diversity and things like that are you know things that I really care about. And so there's an element of confidence is the first thing that I think is different. You just have more confidence in who you are. I think you can get that in your first one too. I just happen to have gotten in my second one. Second one is, um, I think, related to that. It's very, um, on the ego, it's very hard, I think, in the tech world because there's so many things happening and yeah. companies going public and huge acquisitions. And it's, it's sometimes you feel like you're in a game and like, are, am I, where am I on the leaderboard? I'm way back, right? But I think there's some element of defining your own game is the second thing. And I've been mm -hmm. able to feel some confidence in is, look, I may never be Amazon, Maybe one day, but I, you know, but can I uh, have a company that I'm really proud of because of you know how we do it and all that? Yeah. And then the third thing is, I think because of those first two, the confidence in defining your own game, the willingness to go bigger and like try bigger things, and you know that means being able to raise money and do bigger ambitions and all that. So those are the things that I've kind of uh, learned and taken this way. Now, if I went back in time, the more the fun version of this here, I wrote down a list of things I would I would do. Number one, I would uh, if I went back in time from the beginning, I would buy Amazon stock, obviously, because that would be good to put aside all my career stuff. That that would be better investment Boy, that than anything. Been good. Yeah, that yeah. would be good. Uh, start a ride sharing company. Uh, <laughs> let's put those aside. I think I think there's this element going back to what I said of I would tell myself to be myself, right? And that's I'm so trite, and everyone says that it's like the most cliched thing. But it's actually at the end of the day, to some extent, the whole learning of my life. And there's actually a great CEO, unbelievable CEO um, named Frank Slootman. I don't know if you, you probably yeah. interact with the CEO of Service Absolutely. now. I, I met him and I read his stuff. And I learned so much data, from him. Data domain, prior, data domain, yep. and yeah. And just, I mean, one of the greatest creators shareholder value. And we have very different philosophies, right? And so one of the things I've been able to do is meet people like him and say, okay, I don't need to be him. I can be myself. And I can learn and write down the things he does well. I mean, he runs all these great things in his company well, but I don't have to be him, right? I don't have to be Jeff Bezos. I don't have to, because I'll never be Frank Slootman or Jeff Bezos. And it's kind of intimidating. I can be myself is the thing that I think I feel really comfortable about. Great. Okay, I have to ask you a little bit about your experience with VCs. Yeah. Uh, you've been very successful. I love all my VCs, by the way, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> you've been very successful raising capital. Sadly, we at GGV are not one of your VCs, oh. but you have you have Battery, Lightspeed, Bessemer, some great VCs around the table. Bank you, Capital as well. Yeah, Bank. Insight. Yeah. yeah, so you've been successful uh, attracting great VCs. Any kind of rules of the road, things that have worked well as you've been attracting VCs or things you wish you've done differently in, in the past? Yeah, totally. And I, you know, it's interesting because in the VC world, I have 
some benefit that I was in EIR a couple times yep. as well. So I've, I've seen a little bit of your world and, and this world. And and actually, the worlds aren't that different in that, like, it's not some kind of, like, people make it out to be some evil game between the two sides. It's not like that at all. I think I think there's some things I've picked up that are just compelling. I think people do see that in the long run, and especially in enterprise, the team's ability to lead and evolve and grow is a huge determiner of the success. I think that's true for a lot of investments, right? And so I do think there's this element of how do you convey confidence to the investors and measured confidence. So for me, it's been a real confidence in the long term of the business, which I have tremendous confidence in, and a humility and transparency about the short term, right? So, you know, it's not like Gainsight's always killing it or crushing it or whatever word you're supposed to use here, right? But I think our future is to kill it and crush it, right? And and today we have things we've dealt with, right? And we've had challenges and we've had things ups and downs. And I think there's some, I don't know what you're, you feel, but I think there's some element of that transparency with your investors about mm-hmm. the present and the confidence about the future that is a, is a winning combination. I think sometimes people over-rotate on either and say, hey, yeah, we have no problems, we're just crushing. And then it's like you dig, dig into the diligence data and you can see that there's challenges there, right? Um, as an example, in the uh, our Series C with Byron Dieter from Bessemer, you know, we had just been like going to market and like learning how to deploy this product for the first time, right? And our implementations were like mixed or complicated. And um, Byron brought it up in a meeting. He said, oh, you know, I've heard some things about the implementation taking longer. And we're like, yeah, you were totally right. Why don't you come to our offsite where we're working on our implementation process? And he and he brought one of his teammates, Christina Shen, and him to the offsite. And they like, before the deal, like that was pre-term sheet or Radical something. Radical like transparency. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, like let's be open with them. So that's, that's I think, one thing that people maybe, maybe yeah. miss. It doesn't have to be as gamesmanship as people apply. Two is, I think, storytelling. So I think narratives and stories do matter. People do believe in the this idea of like, what's the why behind what you're doing? What's your purpose? Where are you going? And I think companies, every business needs to be get better at storytelling. And then three, I think the third thing I've learned is I think people appreciate long-term ambition and short-term focus. So what kind of customers you go after? Wow, we sell to pretty much everyone. That's the wrong answer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. that, is, that is the wrong yeah, exactly. answer. Exactly. <laughs> right? It's like I meet entrepreneurs a lot. I'm like, okay, well, it seems like you guys would be a really good fit for these kinds. And they're like, well, no, we could work anywhere. I'm like, yeah, but you'd be a really good fit here. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with being a dominant player in a niche early on, because then you can expand that over time, right? Very good. Very cool. Okay. Nick, this has been awesome. We're going to end with a lightning round. Great. Uh, so you're in the hot seat. I'm just going to ask questions and Give us the the first thing that comes to your mind. Tell us about a book you've enjoyed reading recently uh, that you'd recommend to other founders and leaders. Okay, awesome. I, I, a couple that uh, I'd throw out, Brotopia for sure, because I think every, especially every male CEO should read that. Great. I'm not a big business book person. I like actually reading philosophy and science because it gets me thinking about other stuff. So a couple that I'd recommend. There's a book that came out recently called But What If We're Wrong? And it's about the idea of like, when do you have conviction about ideas and how do you know whether you're right or wrong? It's actually a really interesting book. Um, I recommend our book, Customer Success, so you can read it. And then finally, um, if you want deep philosophy, my, my favorite book of all time is called Godel Escherbach, which is about philosophy, math, science, and reality. And it's 800 pages of math formulas. So that may be not, not a beach read. So That sounds like something I'm going to enjoy my next trip to China. Exactly. Do it. <laughs> Great. How about your favorite interview question? That you like to ask and why? Yeah, so I I don't I don't have like for me there's it's not like there's always one question that just dives into the details for every role, but there's one kind of pattern of question I think works. It's actually a friend of mine does this professional interviewing as a living, and he, it's called threat of reference check, and it basically says 
Glenn, I see you worked for, you know, Joe before in your past company. When I call Joe, what's he going to say about you? Uh Uh-oh. So, right? And it's not if I call Joe, it's when When. I call Joe, right? And that's actually, it causes people to really think, what is that person going to say about me? And I think that's a very effective technique. Good, good. Okay, last one for you. What's something you believe that most people don't? So outside of work, as I mentioned, I'm very into like science and philosophy. So I do wonder whether reality, time, and space exist. But that's probably a different podcast. We'll talk about those more. I think for me, the thing I believe in the business world that a lot of people don't is the traditional expression people use is it's not personal, it's business. That's you know from the godfather. People say it all the time. And I think it's actually not business, it's personal. That's great. Well, with that, Nick, thanks so much for joining us on Founder Real Talk. This was fantastic. And Really looking forward to more great things out of Gainsight, and we can understand why after this conversation. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, you can find all our episodes on founderrealtalk.ggvc.com or at Apple Podcasts, Overcast, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please rate us and share as well to help others find this podcast. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000, from seed to pre-IPO. We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise, and have invested in over 300 companies since inception including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com. If you have any feedback or ideas for future guests, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk@ggvc.com. at ggvc.com. Thanks for listening.